Well, welcome to uh, another day as we go through the Word of God and looking forward to uh, reading through Psalm 10 today. And I love going through the Psalms. I like to, as I'm reading the Word of God, to uh, every now and then just go back and read some Psalms and kind of intersperse them into the rest of my reading of uh, the Word of God. One of the things I'm always reminded of when I read the Psalms is that the psalmist, no matter whether it be David, some of the unnamed psalmists, the sons of Korah, they always take you on a journey in just one psalm. In one psalm, there's a, there's a beginning, there's a whole lot of uh, thoughts and then arrivals at conclusions and takes you on a journey just in one, in one psalm. It can really encourage you. And I love it how the psalmist David always, no matter what he was going through, always ended up in a place of confidence in God, even though uh, he really despaired and felt that God even just abandoning him at certain times, but he always realized that God actually never did that. This is a wonderful psalm, Psalm 10, that we're going to look at today. Uh, and uh, before I do, as always, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, my Facebook page, follow it, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram page, AP Richards. Please uh, follow that as well. Links are always in the description below. And I want you to do that because I want you to like, comment, and share these videos after you've subscribed so that uh, as many people as you know can actually get the benefit out of understanding the Word of God and seeing how they can apply it to their life. And I think it's really uh, an amazing opportunity that we have uh, to be able to do that. So let's start off now. This is a very interesting psalm. doesn't have a title. doesn't tell us who wrote it. We think it's David. I think it's David. It's, it's right in the middle of about 40 psalms uh, collected that were written by David. He, David did not write all the psalms. He wrote kind of half of them. And, uh, and if you want to see my, uh, where I talk about all that, look at my video on Psalm 1. You'll be able to see that. Uh, and this is a psalm all about uh, the journey that you go on when you're in, in the time of trouble to arriving at a point of calm confidence. And that's, that's really what uh, the psalmist was taking us on a journey. So let's start off Psalm 1, sorry, Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Yes, a question that you and I ask. When, when all of a sudden we're like, I don't feel just disconnected from, from God like a, a little bit or even far away. I feel like I don't know where he is. I've got no clue. Uh, and the psalmist asks a question that's very well known to any Christian, uh, which is having this, this anxiety that wells up within you uh, from the inactivity of God in our lives, the seemingly uh, inactive role of God in our life. Um, and... Spurgeon said this, the presence of God is the joy of his people, but any suspicion of his absence is distracting beyond measure. Uh, man, I don't know if ever a truer word has been spoken. So that's how he starts off. Let's uh, read verse two. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy, renounces the Lord. The wicked is proud in his countenance. Uh, in his proud countenance does not see God. God is in none of his thoughts. Uh, this is an amazing opening to this psalm. Uh, and, and you'll see why. This is explaining why the psalmist was so troubled by the seeming inactivity of God. Because he saw this wicked, proud man who was persecuting the poor, approving other sinners, 
sinning against God by renouncing who God is, not seeking God. And he's like, I can't believe that this is happening. And now you and I immediately understand that if somebody says, I don't believe in God, I refuse to believe that Jesus is the son of God. We understand that to be the renouncing of God and to be sinful. It's a rejection of God. But we don't always think about what the psalmist here is saying is also sinful, which is to basically put the person who doesn't seek God and the person who doesn't think about God in the same category as the person who renounces God. Uh, that's actually a little, that, that, that should give us a little bit of a shake. David Guzik says, men do not seek God. This is a great sin. Men do not think about God. This is also a great sin. Man has obligations to God as his creator and sovereign, and it is a sin to neglect them. Man commits these sins because of his proud countenance. Ignoring God is an expression of our independence and perceived equality and sometimes even superiority to God himself. Now, it can be said of the, this proud, wicked man in this psalm that God is in none of his thoughts. But what's interesting is that as the psalm goes on, we see that the wicked constantly does think about God. Uh, in, in, in the later verses, verses 11, verse 13, uh, God has forgotten. He hides his face. The wicked hides his face. He will never see. You will not require an account. So, so the wicked's telling God why he doesn't want to think about God, which means you're thinking about God to tell him that you're not thinking about him. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> That messed up logic, and it's no different than, than, than many people today get messed up in their logic of you know trying to prove why they can be what they want to be. So the psalmist here says, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. This is the prayer of the psalmist regarding the wicked, and it's a heartfelt prayer. Spurgeon says, there are none who will dispute the justice of God when he shall hang every Haman on his own gallows and cast all the enemies of all his Daniels into their own den of lions. So, verse 5. Uh, this is the psalmist complaining, lamenting to God about the wicked. The wicked, his ways are always prospering. Prospering. Your judgments, God, they're far above out of his sight, and as for all these enemies, he sneers at them. So the psalmist is now protesting to God. Are you kidding me? Are you not seeing what he's doing? Uh, you know, th th this guy's constantly prospering. Um, and the only reason he's prosper prospering is because you don't judge him and he seems out of your sight. It's like you don't even care about him. Uh, David Guzik says this, we can imagine the psalmist thinking, if only God would demonstrate his judgment to this wicked man, then he would change his ways. This may sound like a complaint against God, and in some sense it is. Yet it should be uh, no more be seen as a complete confidence in God's rule and authority, because the psalmist recognized that the wicked could never prosper in the first place unless God allowed it. So he now appeals to God to not allow it. Verse 6. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. This is, this is what the psalmist is saying about what the wicked person says. Uh, I will not be moved. I'll never be in adversity. His mouth, the wicked, it's full of cursing and deceit and oppression and under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. This is interesting uh, because the psalmist examines and exposes the sins of the wicked man in, in these verses, which is that this person is not afraid of their enemies, there's pride and sin in their heart. There's pride and sin in their mouth and under their tongue. 
No wonder the psalmist is mad at this wicked sinner. Uh, James Boyce said this, We are impressed at how often the wicked speech of men, which is often today regarded as no sin at all, is regarded as a sin in the Psalms. Cursing, lying, threatening, troubling, evil speech, they're all destructive and they flow from one who does not believe that God will hold him or her accountable. And I totally agree with that. I, Christians who swear, I talk about this all the time. Christians who swear and, and they're like, oh yeah, well, well, it's no big deal. And it's like, well, you know, no, it's a big deal because the Bible says don't do it. No, let no vain word come out of your mouth. I mean, I could go on for days the Bible verses about not swearing. But Christians seem to somehow think that, uh, some Christians think that it's cool, makes them a cool Christian if they swear. Uh, you are deceived if you think that. Let me just tell you, my friend, deception is, is running over your life. So you need to stop being deceived, repent of your sin, and, and remember power and life of death lies in the tongue, and use your tongue for that which glorifies God. And let me tell you, as I've said a million times, if Jesus was standing in front of you, no way would you swear. I don't care how cool you think you are. And then there's Christians who swear at home when they hurt themselves or when just their kids were around. That's what you want your kids growing up in? No. No, not at all. See, if you swear, you're, you're the wicked person here. You don't want to do that. I don't want to be wicked. If the Bible makes me aware of something that makes me wicked, uh, I'm going to stop that. Now, we say, yeah, but you don't understand uh, because, you know... Uh, I was having a really tough day and that really hurt and that person hurt me and you know I was really angry so it's okay to swear. And I can imagine if God was my personality, he'd be in heaven, he'd be like, yeah, don't care, uh, don't care, uh, don't care, don't care, don't care, don't care, uh, don't care. <laughs> now you're really glad that I'm not God doing that. But, but that's, uh, that's the frustration I have with people who are excusing sin. Now, I'm not saying I'm any better. We've all, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. But when we're aware of sin in our life, let's cut it out. And this is what the psalmist is talking about here. He's saying the reason the guy doesn't cut it out is because he thinks he's never going to have to pay a price for it. Um, verse 8. He sits in the lurking places. of the villages, in the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws them into his net. And so he crouches, he lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. Because he is said in his heart, God has forgiven him. God has forgotten. Sorry, not God has forgiven him. Uh, the wicked says, God's forgotten. All these things that I've done, God's forgotten. God's, God's hidden his face. He doesn't care. He de he's not even looking at me. He will never see. So the psalmist continues his examination of the wicked man in this little part of the psalm here who had troubled him. And, and, and the nature of this wicked man is revealed as somebody who's secret. They do everything in secret. They're lurking, lurking. They're in secret places. Their eyes are secretly fixed. They're lying in secret. They lie low. They... They, they, uh, somebody who is a bully, somebody who focuses violence on the weak, those people that they know are never going to fight back. Uh, and the psalmist, this made the murder, the oppression and the bullying of this wicked man all the worse. It, he, he did it 
This wicked man did it, cherishing the thought that God has forgotten and is not going to punish him for it and would never see his wickedness against the poor and the helpless. And it's, uh, Spurgeon said this, it's common for men to think that God has forgotten their sins simply because it seems to those men that they were kid committed a long time ago. Time cannot raise out that which hath been known from eternity. God is like an elephant. He has a memory that doesn't ever forget. It doesn't matter. And if you've got a sin in your life that you committed a long time ago and you've never asked for forgiveness uh, uh, for that sin, then, then I urge you today, ask for forgiveness right now in Jesus' name and say, God, I repent, I'm sorry, and allow me to move on. Even if it was a long time ago, God has not forgotten. And just because you feel like you've, you've escaped punishment and judgment for it doesn't mean that you're not going to. Okay? Um, we can... We can see here um, the difference between the pain in the believer, the psalmist, who fears that God has forgotten, and then the sinner who is vainly just hoping and taking very false comfort in the idea that God has forgotten. So one is like, God, why have you forgotten? The wicked's like, he's totally forgotten. Neither one are true. God never forgets. Okay, let's go on to verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Um, the psalmist simply called uh, upon God to take action. Lord, this wicked man finds comfort in the idea that you're not going to do anything against him. So arise, O Lord, lift up your hand against this wicked man. Uh, Guzik says this, It is not stated in this untitled psalm, but often assumed that David wrote this psalm, because it is arranged in the midst of several psalms that are specifically attributed to David, notably Psalms 3-9 to and 11-32. to Yet we know David to be a man of valiant action and warrior spirit, not the kind to stand passively back while the wicked murdered and terrorized the weak and helpless. The only exception to this would be if the wicked man were in a place of a God-appointed authority, such as Paul was in Israel. Perhaps this psalm was a cry of David for God to stop Saul because David knew that it was not his place to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Interesting perspective, just something to think about. Verse 13, why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. The psalmist answers his own question in the next lines. The wicked renounce God because they say in their, their heart, no, God's never going to make me give an account of this. And, and this observation has an inherent prayer in it. Lord, please require the wicked to give an account of everything that they have done uh, against me and against you. Verse 14. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief, to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Upon further reflection, the psalmist starts to come around here and recognizes that God has, has indeed seen because he sees and cares about the trouble and the grief of the poor and the helpless. Uh, and he says, you'll repay it by your hand. That's the confidence that the psalmist has in God's ju judgments. He most certainly will repay the wicked for their sin. God will indeed answer the helpless and be the helper of the fatherless. Verse 15. 
Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The psalmist calls upon God to help the weak by shattering the wicked and the evil man and to thoroughly seek out his wickedness until you find none. Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. The psalmist began with almost a a sense of despair in his times of trouble, but he ends here with this calm confidence in the reign of the Lord as an eternal king. See, God had long been declared the king of Israel since Exodus 15, even when his people rejected his rule in 1 Samuel chapter 8. If David wrote this psalm, especially during a time of persecution from Saul, then the words of the, the, the words, the Lord is king forever and ever, would have special meaning because they'd be recognizing the reign of God even over the troubled and dysfunctional reign of King Saul. Uh, when, when the writer here, the psalmist, talks about the nations have perished out of his land, he's saying he's remembering the past victories of God against the cruel enemies of God's people. Uh, in this case, that would be the Canaanites who occupied the land. And they gave the, the memories of those uh, victories gave the psalmist greater confidence regarding the present help of the Lord, which is a principle that we should apply every time in our life whenever we find ourselves in the middle of something that's tough. Remember that God got us out of the last one, even if it wasn't the way we wanted him to get us out of it. Um, Verse 17, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. This continues to express the calm confidence of the psalmist. God will not abandon the poor and needy, but will help and bless them. David, Spurgeon says this, David does not say, thou hast heard the prayer of the humble. He means that, but he also means a great deal more. Sometimes we have desires that we cannot express. They are too big, too deep. We cannot clothe them in language. At other times we have desires which we dare not express because we feel too bowed down. We see too much of our own undesert, in other words, we're undeserving, to be able to venture near the throne of God to even utter our desires. But the Lord hears the desire when we cannot or dare not turn it into the actual form of a verbal prayer. Isn't that great? Just great to know that God, God, God understands the, the prayers of your heart when you can't even put it into human language. Amazing. You'll prepare their heart. The psalmist reminds us that the spiritual preparation of the heart is a great gift. It's an answer to prayer. It's a marker of God's blessing. And uh, you can see the, the marks of God's grace in this whole psalm, that God prepares the heart. God suggests the prayer of the heart. God hears what is prayed from the heart and God answers the petition of the heart. He who has a cry in his heart after God may rest assured that that cry proceeded from a divine preparation and that an answer will soon arrive. No man ever had a cry in his heart after salvation but from God. He who continues to cry shall infallibly be heard. Adam Clark. Verse 18. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. 
The psalmist ends with assurance of God's justice applied to the wicked. What began with a sense of despair in times of trouble has ended with calm confidence in God's justice and God's victory, which is a very fitting conclusion to the psalmist's opening question when he started out this whole journey. Why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Ah, now I understand. Just like us, the psalmist, this is the journey of our life. This, this is how we live week by week by week is this journey of Psalm 10. I'll tell you what I observe from this. God is always aware of everything, our troubles, our pain, the wrongs done against us. Uh, and that's why he is the perfect one to prepare our hearts and put the right prayer in our heart because he knows the perfect answer, because he knows what we're going through. That's why our prayers need to default from him. That's the prayers of the righteous. So there you go, I wanna pray for you. Heavenly Father, help our prayers to reflect your heart and your desire, who you are, what you know, and how you'll never ever forget. You have an amazing memory and we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you, you constantly come into every area of our life and bring a calm confidence no matter what kind of trouble we find ourselves in. And God, that even if there's people who are doing wicked things against us, God, that you will take care of that, that you have seen what they've done, even if it was many years ago. And Father, I pray, Lord, that anybody here today who's, they're watching this and maybe there's a past sin in their life that they've never asked for forgiveness for because it's been so long. I pray you convict them through the power of the Holy Spirit in a positive way to repent of that sin and allow you to bring healing so that they can move on knowing the confidence of your restoration. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.